And uh, so I, ne- I need to get started here so we can try to finish up last week's message. And then next week will be this week's message. Here we go. First Kings. We want to begin in chapter 5, which is kind of where we ended up leaving off. We, uh, of course, our study in Solomon is reign. We're seeing that uh, Solomon's reign uh, looks a lot like Jesus' reign. There's a type, there's typology going on there. Solomon is the wisest man on the earth. He is uh, building a kingdom that in which everybody is blessed, that the whole nation is doing well under his rule. But he's also building a temple. And as he builds a temple, then we, we see what well, we start to think. Well, wait, where have I heard this before? Well, uh, the New Testament often uses that as uh, to describe the church. So we know that Christ reigns now and he's building a kingdom. He, and, and it's called the church. And, and the church is likened to a spiritual temple, right? The, the dwelling place of God. So there's a lot of typology in these things, a lot of things to uh, just see in that sense. So, so we saw Solomon's reign was in wisdom and order. Was, uh, the Lord rules the same way. Uh, we're told, we'll see this in, in chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians, that we are to do everything decently and in order because God is not an author of confusion. And so we are to rule our lives decently in order as well. I just feel like that's one application that we have to get up in the morning with a goal. There, we have purpose to our life and we don't just live haphazardly. We have, as Paul says, you know, he, he gets under his body. He controls his body and his mind so that he can serve the Lord. He doesn't just uh, allow other things to uh, control him, but he controls them. We must live with purpose because that's a reflection of the rule of God in our lives, right? And then we saw that all, <clears throat> we kind of finished <clears throat> as we dealt with uh, how that it, it, it pointed out very specifically that all the land promises that were, well, all the promises, period, were, that were given to uh, earlier to Abraham and Moses were uh, Israel enjoyed by the time of Solomon. <coughs> um, and so there are later promises in the uh, prophets where Israel is, of course, told, foretold that they are going to be uh, cast uh, out of the land, right? They're going to go off to captivity. And all the prophets, minor and major, at some point, talk about how that Israel will be regathered into the land. But those are separate. So all the promises that Israel would become a nation, remember uh, one of the things specifically said to Solomon was uh, that the, well, that's in chapter 4, that, um, oh yeah, Verse 20, Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. What did he tell Abraham? I, I, you have a, uh, a, a people will flow from you, will come from you, this great nation that will be as the sands of the sea for number, right? And so we're being told that all that is fulfilled. Well, you still got those today who say that, well, the land promises given to Israel were never fulfilled. And that we're still waiting on them. Well, well, we're told in Joshua and First Kings that, that they did receive their promises. So, so we're not looking for another for for them to finally get into Palestine. They've been to Palestine. They had Palestine and every promise that 
God made to them. But, as we said here, the, the prophets said that you're going to be going off into captivity because you've broken uh, covenant. So, the Lord says, I will spew you out of the land. But now you've got a problem. Because the, the, the promises in the, in the, uh, to Abraham and Moses weren't ju- just about Israel. In fact, Israel was a minor character in play. The promises given to Israel was that a Messiah would come. In Abraham, you're going to have a great nation, but it's in that seed that the Messiah would come that would be a blessing to the earth. And Paul says that that was God preaching the gospel to Abraham. It's about Christ. So if they have been spewed out of the land and they're in captivity, now we've got this big problem because the Messiah hasn't come yet. So now what's going to go on? So the prophets uh, all spoke about a time when you would be gathered back into the land. And then you also find out that it's a, and not just you, but the nations shall come. And we'll read some of these in just a moment. The nations will also flow into Jerusalem. There'll be a time of regathering. And the Messiah would come and establish an everlasting kingdom. And so now the promises are that you would be regathered. Well, that happened under Zerubbabel, right? Remember it went under Cyrus and he sent the decree out that allowed them to go back. They went back and they built the temple. They built Jerusalem. So now you've got things back in place so that the Messiah would come, which, of course, was the next thing that was recorded. In Matthew, the Messiah comes. The temple's been rebuilt. And everything's back kind of to, to normal to some degree. So you've got the stage set so that the Messiah could come back and do his work of redemption. Because that was always what all this was for anyway. Now the premillennialist, uh, especially the dispensationalist, would say, well, uh, yeah, but Israel still has to have the land. So, so they had it in the past. That's not enough. The regathering is going to not not when Christ would come, not 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 in the period between the testaments, but it speaks of a future time where the nations will be regathered back. Well, the the, the Jews will be gathered back into Palestine, and then the Lord will come back and set up a thousand year kingdom. Well, I mean, I guess if that happens, it's all well and good, but. It, it, it's like, well, wait, it's not the greater thing that Christ sits upon the throne now and he reigns and, and he is building his temple now. Or is the pinnacle of human uh, redemptive plan a thousand year kingdom that's, that's not everlasting, but in a sense a thousand years, uh, which there's only time you read about that is in Revelation 20 and, and they wouldn't even have taken it for a thousand years. But is that the pinnacle? Or do we live in the pinnacle of it now as Christ is building the church? And then the next thing we're waiting for is his coming to make all things right, to 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 uh, defeat the very last of enemy death and establish the new heavens and the new earth. So those those are the two basic plans. Um, and you kind of know where I'm coming from, and I feel like a better case can be made. But this is... That would answer some of the maybe questions that people have about the land promises and uh, and, and are we still waiting for that to take place? We're being told here that that's already uh, taken place. So that brings us to chapter 5 of 1 Kings. And in chapter 5, we see here uh, the preparations made for the building of the temple, which will be built uh, in more detail 
in chapter uh, 6. And um, we're forced again as we read chapter 5 to and read all these details. And, and I hope that you've been able to read. Let, let's just read for uh, just to read something here. The first few verses of chapter 5. Now Hiram the king of Tyre sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father. For Hiram always loved David, and Solomon sent word to Hiram, You know that David my father could not build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the warfare which his enemies surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. And so there, again, that's New Testament language as well. Uh, that Christ must reign until he puts all enemies, takes all enemies his footstool. Certainly, uh, that began at the cross when Satan and sin were, uh, the, their doom was set forth and then Christ, uh, is building the, the temple as it were. So you, you see kind of the fulfillment of, of these things. Um, then, but verse four, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. And so I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. As the Lord said to David my father, Your son, whom I will set on your throne in your place, shall build the house for my name. Now therefore command that the cedars of Lebanon be cut for me, and my servants will join your servants, and I will pay for your servants such wages as you set. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. So as we read this, and of course it goes on to describe the, the workforce and how Solomon kind of brought everything together uh, in the quarries and in the, the forest to build, get the supplies ready to build the temple. So so what do we make of, of all that? And certainly we might point out just in passing that many skeptics have tried to make out that the, the numbers here are completely realistic when it comes to the amount of gold that was put in the temple. And all that, that, that it couldn't exist, uh, it just was unrealistic. And yet, as archaeology uh, always ends up proving the Bible, you find out that, that the, the, the temple structure and the gold and the wealth that was put into it was not unusual for the, for the, the, the kingdoms of this age. Uh, and so, again, uh, when you try to uh, disprove the Bible, it never works. It never has worked. But um, <clears throat> Hiram's account here, I think, is more than just an explanation of where the materials come from. Again, as we're reading this, is it just why the details to the labor force and, 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 and the, where the cedar comes from? And again, we have to see the greater picture that that in, in the, only the Jews built the tabernacle while they're in the wilderness, right? But now this temple is going to be built not just by the Jews, but by it's going to be a Jew-Gentile uh, effort. The, the Lord here, Solomon, is gathering uh, material from the nations to build his house. And so, again, you, you start thinking about a lot of, and there's just so many different texts that we could go to, but for Psalm 72, 11, May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Uh, which again is things that happen in the Solomon's rule uh, in, in a typical logical way. Isaiah 62: For behold, darkness will cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise among you, and His glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. 
Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their king shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have made mercy on, had mercy on you. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night, and they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. And again, I think this is a looking forward to the fulfillment of what we're seeing here when Christ builds his kingdom uh, with the wealth of the nations. When, when, you know, it's a worldwide thing. We take, the gospel goes forth to all peoples. And so uh, here the king sends word to Hiram that uh, God needs him to help him build the temple, and he answers the call. And so um, in Micah 4, Verse starting in verse one, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountains of the house, mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And of course, this is talking about it. initially it, it, the, the picture is the temple sitting upon Mount Zion, sitting upon the temple mount, as it were. And, and it shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Well. You know, again, so it's speaking about something greater, but what is that? Well, the, the Zion, quite often in the Old Testament, refers to the church, <clears throat> the temple of God, the, the dwelling place of God. And that will be established as the highest. And the, and the nations shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, which has historically always been thought of as a reference to the effects of the gospel. Again, so the the, the word of God is coming forth from Jerusalem, the, 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 the from the church. The church preaches the word of God, and... Uh, the word of God has effect among the peoples, right? Which is what it's saying here. There's spears in the pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. And again, these are the people who have come and bowed the knee to God. Now, there are those, the post-millennials, for instance, would say that, well, that means that at some point <clears throat> there will be a peace on earth, that everybody will be serving the Lord and no nation will be fighting each other. Um, a, a nice thought. I, I don't think biblically that it, it can be supported, but they would use this in their support. <clears throat> the uh, premillennialists would say, "Well, this always this can't take place until Christ comes back and sets us his physical earthly kingdom, and then that will take place," which is true. But again, you have to be able to support that from I think New Testament text as well, and, and I think it's very difficult to do that. Historically, at least the more amillennial position has been that this is speaking spiritually. It's using Old Testament language to speak of the effects of the gospel. Those, the nations that come into the church, lay down their weapons of war and, and they speak peace and they live, they're, they're people of peace. And then notice, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree and no one shall make them afraid for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Again, it's, it's very easy to see this as well having to take place in a literal way, but that's language. It's just it's Old Testament language that we saw with Solomon, right? Where 
under Solomon's reign, every man sat under his fig tree and had plenty to eat and drink. So is it speaking of a time in which there, that will happen on earth uh, before Christ comes back? Or is it, is it is saying that as a Christian, I'm, the Lord supplies every need I have and I, he, and I don't fear what this world can do. It doesn't mean that, that of course, I, I can't be in danger physically. But but uh, he's taken away all. He's taken away death. He's taken away my judgment. All that he, Jesus said: "Fear not those who can destroy the body, but those who destroy the body and the soul." And, and for a Christian, no one can destroy his soul. We're safe in Christ. So um, we we no one can make me afraid that that I that because no one can separate me from Jesus Christ. So those are just the the, the different ways that people. Uh, look at this, and, and uh, you know, good people uh, look at it differently. We, we've been getting together with a guy who uh, absolutely believes that the Jews are going to have a kingdom, a thousand-year kingdom, when Christ comes back and believes in the tribulation, the seven-year tribulation, and all that. And he's a, he's a fine man, and, and we have good fellowship. I just, and he'll say, I just have I have a different hermeneutic. He he believes that there's something waiting for Israel. You know, that in, in that sense. And, and, you know, so you, you got to, again, really, I think a lot of it has to do with whether what could be supported from the New Testament. But we won't uh, say, you know, spend more time talking about that as such. But it is precisely because God has promised that Christ's kingdom cannot be stopped, that we are willing to work and that we are willing to give our lives because we know that Christ's kingdom cannot be undone. The promises of God in Christ are yes and yes, not yes and maybe. Right? If I am in Christ, I know I have eternal life. I know that I shall come out on top. And so I think of Daniel 7, 14. And to him was given dominion. And this is, of course, the Messiah that he's speaking of here in glory and kingdom. That all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And again, the kingdom has begun. It is, we don't see the final aspects of that. There, we will someday be in the new heavens and the new earth, and there will be no sin and no enemy. But it has begun. It has begun within us, and uh, the, 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 the victory is sure. And so the promises are old, but they will prove it. They will prove to be very accurate. We, could, you know, th- these things might not always look uh, like uh, it's what's going on. And that's always been a struggle I think Christians have had because we see this world and chaos, and can Christ really be on the throne? You know, can, can he really be sovereign and all that? But what we can do is read these promises and know that these are this is God's word. They will come to pass. In verse 11 of chapter 5, back in our text, it says, While Solomon gave Hiram 2,000 cores, uh, some would say bushels, um, you know, not exactly sure what that means, or leaders, but... Um, of wheat as food for his household and 20,000 cores of beaten oil. Solomon gave this to Hiram year by year. And you see the, that, that uh, 
Solomon is paying and, and making sure everybody has just what they need to get the work done. And so, um, this is the way Christ's kingdom works. He directs everything's happening according to his will, as we've seen in the first Corinthians. The Spirit gives gifts as he wills. Uh, it's not left up to chance. Uh, he's directing everything. That's one thing you notice in chapter five and six that he's directing all, everything that's taking place. And, uh, <clears throat> it's not a, a kingdom where if you help me, I'll help you. It's a kingdom of grace. It's a kingdom that I, I have given you all things and, and we serve him in joy and thankfulness. And, uh, so in verse 13, we have something interesting to just comment on. Here it talks about Solomon drafting the forced labor out of all Israel and the draft number 30,000 men and he sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in shifts. They would be a month in Lebanon and two months at home. Adoniram was in charge of the draft. And it goes on to talk about the different numbers of people that he had a great army of workers, uh, who, you know, those who just burden bears, stone cutters, uh, and so forth at his disposal to do the job. Interestingly enough, uh, many have used this account to decry the trampling of the rights of the common man. Well, this is just awful. Here you go. They're, they're, it's forced labor. They're just slaves of Solomon. And this isn't right. Well, first of all, um, it's a kingdom. It's not democracy. It's not a democracy. Uh, so uh, this is just the way it was back then. In one sense, the king told you what to do. That, that's just how a kingdom works. The whole idea is that the king is there to build a nation and to uh, do what needs to be done. And so whatever he asks you to do, you do. So it's not a democracy, and it's not a passage that is trying to uh, teach uh, uh, what politics work best or anything like that, or social issues. It's not teaching about that anyway. It's just re- it's recounting to us history. It is to teach us of the sovereign yet gracious rule of Christ over the church, I believe, and he uses his people well, as well as those in the world to do his bidding. What we're seeing is, I think, a picture of the Lord uh, giving gifts to men and using their gifts to do his bidding. But notice here, again, to make, to just make a comment on this idea of were they being mistreated, notice that they were Worked a month and are off too. Well, that doesn't sound all that bad to me. I, I've, I've uh, certainly seen a lot worse conditions to that. So, you say, yeah, but they're forced to do this. Well, have you ever heard of the draft? Where a country, the, the leadership of the country, the government of the country, deems it necessary to force the, uh, in, in the best of circumstances, the young men to go in to serve and, and to perhaps even give their life for a number of years for the good of the country. And no one uh, calls them slaves and, and all that. Now, there are certainly those who disagree with that, but then there are people who don't live in, in the real world anyway, right? But, so, you know, so again, he's drafting them, as, and it even says that as much, for a time to do this. He's the king, and he's building a glorious kingdom, and he's building the, tab- the temple of the Lord that all Israel really understood was God's will anyway. So, again, it's, it's, uh, it's just how you look at it. 
to a sense. Um, and then we've already seen that the covenant people were, uh, we might say, and put it in, in modern vernacular, they were already fat and sassy. In, in chapter 4, verse 20, they all sat under the fig tree. Uh, verse 25, for instance, says, uh, they lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, everyone under his vine and under his fig tree, all the days of Solomon. So they're happy. They're, they've got what they need. And then, just to, uh, an interesting thought was that it's very possible that these were Jews to start with. These were actually the, you think about the Gibeonites who were the people that were, uh, the only reason they were allowed to live there was to be the servants of the rest of the Jews. So again, you see that, um, you've got different groups involved in building simple. Also, you know, Jews were not allowed to be slaves anyway. So there, there's some who say that, that in all likelihood, none of these were Jews. Um, because of chapter 9, verse 20, which is an interesting, I don't think it's really, if they were, if, if they were Jews, it really means anything, but it's, it's something to think about. Chapter 9, starting in verse 20, says, uh, find it here. All the people <clears throat> who were left <clears throat> of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, who were not of the people of Israel, their descendants who were left after them in the land, whom the people of Israel were unable to devote to destruction, Solomon drafted to be slaves to do, and so they are this day. But the people of Israel, Solomon made no slaves. They were the soldiers. They were his officials, commanders, captains, chariots, commanders, and his horsemen. So, in all likelihood, um, these were the people that should have been devoted to destruction, should have never even been allowed to live, but Israel failed, you know, in that capacity, as we saw in the book of Joshua. And uh, so, there were a lot of them. They had grown, and there was a lot of them. And so they're the ones who, well, you get to live, but this is what you're going to be doing. So, it's just some interesting uh, points to ponder as we um, go through this. And again, not to, to try to make this about some kind of politics or a political statement. Um, chapter 6, we come to the actual building of the temple. And again, if you've read that, you, you notice the, the amount of gold and, and things that were going on and the the, the you know all the wood was covered with gold there was um just for instance in the most holy place you had the ark that had the and it was of course over it was made of wood but it was overlaid in gold and you had these two cherubim that sat upon the lid and their and their, uh, their wings went forward and almost touched in the middle and that was solid gold also as you're reading this uh, you find out that there were two wooden uh, cherubim that that were ten feet tall. I believe I have that right, and, and it's, it's it's possible that I've uh, forgotten the exact height. I think they were ten feet tall, and their wings, because you're talking about twenty ten twenty foot wide room, their wings were would spread out with a span of ten feet, and then the other one next to it, and they stood behind, as it were, the ark. With their wings out like this, and the other one next to them, and the ark would be in the middle there, and they were covered in gold. So it's just an, it's an amazing, and that was in the, and that's something I really never noticed until I was going through this again this time, that these things were actually in the most holy place, and just an amazing, uh, 
building, even though it really wasn't that big. I think it was only uh, 20 by 60, um, and then uh, 20 feet high, 20 feet wide, and 60 feet long total. And then a third of that was uh, the Ark of the Covenant, which would have been in a cubicle, the the, um, most holy place. So, um, in chapter 6 begins, though, that in the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, some have said that 480th year sounds familiar. And I think there's something to be said about that, because um, over in Exodus 12, starting at verse 40, it says, The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So we, we of course, we, we went through that. We know that Israel was in Egypt for approximately 430 years, and then they were delivered. And to enter into the Lord's rest, right? To, to go into Canaan. And they entered into the Lord's rest. Now, if you add the 40 years they wandered around in Israel, or in the wilderness, you come up with 470. So you, you come up to a very interesting, a close number to the 480th year of Solomon. Uh, but they, they say, okay, so... They think that's a similar number because now you've got Israel finally receiving the rest that was promised under Solomon. There's peace all around. They don't have to fight any more battles, as it were. And so now the temple is being built, which represents kind of the pinnacle of their rest in Canaan land. So just as uh, you have a redemption here going on, then you kind of are seeing this kind of being fulfilled now. And, you know, it's a possibility. I, I think it's interesting. It does mark the beginning of a new era, or you might say, where their wandering is officially over and their rest is complete. And uh, so I might mention that while we enter the rest of Christ's work, uh, when we are redeemed, right, and we're converted and we enter into the rest of Christ as we rest in his work and we give up our works uh, and realizing that they uh, are, don't produce anything and we rest solely in the work of Christ and we now rest in the gospel. At the same time, we're delivered uh, from the penalty of sin. We know that there's still a work to be done. We still uh, have got sin, remaining sin in us and we look forward to the day when we shall stand with the Lord in perfect uh, sinlessness, and that is the final and full rest of the Lord as well. So just, again, some things to think about, especially when you ever, you ever get around to going through the book of Hebrews, why there will be some good things to study there. Hopefully we'll get to that in the not-too-distant future. So in this chapter, as I said, we are given some details on the temple itself, and we're struck perhaps more than anything with the amount of gold that was used um, just to read some of the verses here in chapter 6, let's read starting in verse 20. It says, The inner sanctuary were 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. That is, of course, the most holy place. And he overlaid it with pure gold. And he overlaid an altar of cedar. Uh, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across 
in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. And again, when he says he overlaid the whole house, I don't think it means on the outside, but on the inside, everything that you could see was no longer in the tabernacle. You you saw some curtains uh, along the top and some gold-covered boards, but when you walked in the the temple, you all you saw was gold. Everything was gold. So it was an amazing thing, other than the, perhaps the floor. Um, and, and that's what he's talking about. You know, that everything had was covered in gold. Um, look at verse uh, 28. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. That's the, the the cherubim that I was just talking about. That were the two that were in the uh, most holy place. Yeah, the, the, well, I say the Ten feet. I meant the, the height of the cherubim were ten cubits, uh, which were, was more than a foot. So they would have, they would have been pretty impressive, right? They would have they would have gone at least two thirds of the way or so up in the the, the twenty foot room. In uh, verse thirty, it says, uh, "And the floor of the house you overlaid with gold in the inner and the outer room." So there you have it. The floor also was covered with gold. So it's just a, a spectacular. Uh, thing to to witness, and of course, only a very few uh, priests ever saw any of it. And you really could say that once this was built, nobody, even the high priest, saw the most holy place because you didn't walk in there and start looking around because that would have been instant death. You walked in there, you were looking down at your bowl of blood, and you were sprinkling that blood with the hyssop that, that, at the uh, altar, and you weren't looking around. At, at, the, at all that, because it, you would have got yourself in all kinds of trouble. And so, you know, spectacular. But I think that'll kind of, something to think about as we move into the next, last thing I want to say here, is that people would say, what a waste. That nobody gets to enjoy this. Well, uh, it's not a waste because this is for the Lord, it's for the glory of God. Right, and of course, there's things that were being taught in type that we that we went through a lot of that with the tabernacle. But but nothing's a waste if we're serving the Lord, if we're rejoicing the Lord, and and so you can't you can't do more than you need to do for the Lord, right? Because at the end of the day, if you do everything you should do, you've only done your duty. So you can't you know you can't waste anything, right? And so again, we're faced with with those who read this, and they can only come up with how much gold is being wasted when when they'll say again, and, and you, you can see their spirit in all this, well, all of that money could have been used to, to serve the poor. Well, that's not the point. Uh, that, that's As Christ taught, worshiping him comes first, and uh, you can't do enough in, in worshiping him. Uh, that's our That's what we've been called to do. Solomon had been called to do this. To, to build this up because worshiping God and understanding God and understanding the, the way he was going to redeem us is what, what, what's important. And everything flows from that. And so we have to remember the kind of covenant that they were under and why all this is, the, what all this is picturing. They were under a covenant that dealt specifically with physical blessings. And, uh, so, those things were, were made. So, for instance, Israel was given the promise to have all, 
great harvest and long life and health if they were keeping covenant. Uh, not because that's what God cares about, that, that we have, that we're happy and, and healthy and wealthy, but that was a type of that, that, that covenant that, uh, that, uh, looking forward to the new covenant, which in the blessings of the new covenant are spiritual. But that was a type of the new covenant. And so they lived in a phys- with physical blessings, but we understand now that physical blessings just like with Israel, aren't always real blessings. Because sometimes the very worst thing that can happen to you is that you have a, a, a big bank account. Or the worst thing that can happen to someone is that they're born beautiful. Or they're born uh, with, a, with, a, with a great, healthy, strong, good-looking body. See, it, it was a blessing in Israel because it was teaching about the blessings that come with serving the Lord. But it's te- but it's but it's a type. It's not It's not the end of it. Just like the animal sacrifices didn't accomplish anything when it came to actually forgiving sins, but they looked forward to the real thing. And so now we live in, in the real blessings. And the real blessing is not the flesh, because the flesh is something that we have to fight to the day we die. The real blessing is to have Christ and to enjoy Him and to have the peace that He offers and the joy that He offers. And of course, the salvation from sin that he offers, the blessed hope. Those are the things, because you think about all the martyrs down throughout history who, who, if, if, if they were being faithful in, uh, the physical, like the health and wealth gospel people tell us today, if, if the physical blessings are a sign of faithfulness, then they failed miserably. But of course, the Bible tells us very, very, uh, directly, very clearly, that it is the martyr who shall receive the greatest reward. Because that's what matters. And it's important for us to understand that. What this doesn't represent is the glory of Christ's work in the building of the church. What this does represent, excuse me, is the glory of Christ's work in building the church in the kingdom of God. This, again, what's the type that's going on here? It is, uh, this, the Lord building the church. And so the glory that we're seeing here is the glory of God as he builds his church, as he glorifies himself in the salvation of men. That's the glory. And not get all bent out of shape because they waste a lot of gold in your mind. It's what does it teach us about the work of Christ that we have to keep in mind. And we don't want to forget Revelation 21, in a sense, which describes the city we're really describing the church, right, um, as a city made of pure gold. Even the streets were made of, of gold. The street that's in the city was made of gold, just like the floor of the temple was here. It isn't the innate glory and worthiness of those who make up the church. It's the glory of, that Jesus is revealing of himself as he builds the tabernacle, as he builds the temple, as he builds the church. That's the glory that we are to see, uh, the glory of the king. And so under the Old Test, Old Covenant physical things were the blessings that looked, that looks, um, the, the physical things were the blessings, uh, that were seen, you know, what are we, what are we seeing here in the, in the, as Solomon builds his temple? We're seeing the glory of Solomon, his wisdom and his might that he is able. In other words, what kind of resources did Solomon have to be able to do this? 
And that's what we're seeing in the building of the church. What kind of resources does God have to be able to call a, a, a lowly, sinful people out of the world and transform them into the image of Christ and to build his church and to, to do so even when all the world is against them. See, what, what the church is supposed to demonstrate is the glory of our king. Just like the, ta- the temple in chapter uh, 6 of uh, 1 Kings is, gl- is showing us the glory of Solomon. Because all this, all these chapters is really about Solomon, right? It's about his glory. And so as we read this, we don't get all sidetracked by uh, political nonsense about social uh, politics, all that kind of stuff. No, this is about the gospel. It's about Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we we can enjoy it and we can benefit from it. And and um, I think we can, uh, the Lord will bless us for it. So we'll stop there today. Any questions for your uh, goodness to us this day? Lord, thank you for Jesus Christ for his work for, on our behalf. We pray especially for Brother Jeff as he travels home, that you might give him safety and uh, bring him back uh, to his family. In Jesus' name, amen.